You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I'm your host, Nathan, and we have another excellent episode lined up for you where I get to interview Elliot Chapman. Yes, Elliot Chapman, the same guy who's been playing Ben Jackson in the Big Finish audio adventures, came on the 42 cast to talk with me. He was very generous with his time. We had a lot of fun discussing his career, discussing Doctor Who. Spoiler, he's a bit of a fan. And talking about his work for Big Finish and sort of recreating the role that Michael Craze began with Ben Jackson back in the 60s. And so I hope you enjoy the episode once we get into it. But uh, yeah, I mean, as far as things are going for me, I'm still in COVID lockdown, still just making do with what I have available here. I do have a bit of news for the podcast that I'm really excited about, but I can't talk about yet, which is kind of annoying because I really want to share this, but I'm also afraid that if I share it, that it won't happen because it's not 100% certain. So I've got some irons in the fire. I've got something that I think will be kind of amazing to share with you guys, but not yet, but hopefully in another episode or two, I'll be able to reveal what that is. But yeah, otherwise, I don't have a lot to talk about on this one ahead of time, so we're just going to move on to the interview, but first we're going to listen to a promo from another fine podcast. We are Nerdlanta. We got these filters, I think they're called pea poppers. That's, oh, that's, for that's exciting. Peas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For, for popping all the peas. Sweaty balls and pea poppers. Always a good time. time. <laughs> Can a podcast be a reboot? Oh, Absolutely. God, yes. <laughs> Your Atlanta Atlanta Atlanta. Atlanta. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. We are highly highly at a late hour. You know, it's just always, always fun to talk about geeky stuff. And in Atlanta is, is the place, place to do okay. it. I guess that's it. We played a promo. So. That was an awesome promo. And we're back. And like I talked about at the top of the show, we have with us today Elliot Chapman, who has played Abel Seaman Ben Jackson on the uh, Doctor Who Companion Chronicles and Early Adventures with Big Finish for several years now. Elliot, welcome to the 42 cast. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. Not a problem. This was something that I really wanted to do, and I was hoping that with the lockdown going on, you know, there were people with time that would be able to do interviews with me, and you were one of the ones uh, that was high on my short list, so uh, I'm glad to have you on. Great. Time is not a problem at the moment, of course. <laughs> yeah, how are you handling things with the uh, lockdown? Um, yeah, I mean, it's... It, it, I mean. <laughs> 
who'd have thought it? Actors aren't on the front line and don't need to be. So I'm, I'm struggling with realising that my chosen profession in life isn't actually all that important, but I'm getting over that. Yeah, so, I mean, everything stopped in that respect, but if there is a silver lining, I've been able to catch up on an awful lot of things that I normally can't catch up on, which is I've been really pushing through a lot of reading and listening to albums in the proper way, one side, then flipping over and listening to the other side, maybe a a day later, really absorbing things that I thought I knew really, really well and finding new things in them, watching lots of old films. So um, I'm I'm holding out. (laughs) Well, that's good. Especially right now, I, I was actually uh, talking with Tim Trelore the other day, and he was talking about keeping sane being the most important thing during lockdown. So whatever you can do to do that. Well, he's an interesting guy because I've, I've, I've done some conventions with Tim. and he's a, he's a lovely fella, but he is possessed of so much energy. Mm. I, did, I did a convention a few years ago in Chicago, and he was on the... And we met a couple of times and did things like uh, the art galleries and, you know, looked around. And yeah, he is a man who who runs on tremendous amounts of energy. So I can understand why he'd be trying to find ways to stay safe. <laughs> yeah. So just for a little bit of background on you, how did you get into acting? When did you know you wanted to be an actor? I knew very early on as a, as a wee kitty, but I was a bit of a late developer. Um, I had this voice at the back of my head when I was uh, about to leave school which said, uh, which kind of closed the bulkhead on my heart a bit because it said, um, don't do that. That's, a, that. that's not a good choice if you want any kind of security. And boy, was I right. <laughs> so I went to university and I read English. And the first thing I did when I graduated was I joined a newspaper and I became mm. a journalist. I realized quite early on that the very thing that an actor needs is no use to a journalist and vice versa because actually journalists have to have a certain professional detachment because of the kinds of things that they might have to investigate and report on. Mm. Whereas actors, it helps if they're incredibly thin-skinned, um, mm. which I am. So I, for, after a while, I realised that training to be a journalist on the job meant spending a lot of nights either being upset, angry, um, <laughs> or, or just too affected by it. Mm-hmm. So I dropped out of journalism, and then I did some um, teaching for a while. And then um, just thought, well, hang on, you know, you've, you've put off this dream to be an actor. What's the worst that can happen? So I decided to, um, I thought, well, to hell with it. I'll write letters to the most prestigious drama schools in the country, because if they turn me down, then this is the wrong choice. And I was incredibly, incredibly lucky that some of them started to say yes. And I did end up going to my dream choice, which is the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School, which I guess would be famous for Patrick Stewart, who was one of the uh, alumni, Daniel Day-Lewis, probably the most famous. And I had this wonderful, wonderful time there. So um, better late than never. The thing was, I was about 29 when I joined, uh, which meant that all my classmates were about 23, 24. But they soon realised that when it came to the maturity stakes, I was well behind them. So it sort of levelled up, you know. Well, that's good that it worked out. <laughs> oh, yeah. So what kind of interests or hobbies do you have beyond acting? I'm sort of doing them now, really, with a lockdown. I've never, I mean, I'm, I'm not someone who I'd say was the most athletic of people. I do exercise and I do work out because I have to. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've never really had much of a, 
yeah, that, that never really happened. <laughs> but I'm a terrible bookworm. So if you leave me with books, I'll just happily, you know, music has been important, important to me. I, I, I mean, when I, when I was younger, I used to do, you know, I did the thing like I was in bands and stuff. Mm. I'm not much of a musician, but I'm enthusiastic. <laughs> um, and big, big sort of fan of film. I mean, you know, I, I'm, and pretty much what I've been doing in this lockdown, because one of the glorious things is my partner is seeing a lot of films in my collection for the very first time. And there's something quite wonderful about someone else watching something that, that, that you know and love and seeing their reaction to it. And, and particularly if they come to the end of it and go, oh my God, how has that never been in my life before? So we've had a few moments like that. So that's been rather nice. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about because my wife is six years younger than I am. And so it's like, all the things that I was watching as a younger person that are part of my sort of cultural DNA and everything are things that she just missed, right? Yeah. So we've done a lot of that, either with television or movies of things like, these are important to me, let's watch them together. And so, yeah, I, I completely understand that feeling. And I love the dialogue as well, because what I found with my partner is that she altered some of my views of things mm -hmm. as much as I have sort of introduced her. To, and that's wonderful because you suddenly think I never used to, I never noticed that before about that particular thing. And now I've got to have a whole new set of thoughts about it because this other person has seen it with me and just opened some doors and windows that I didn't even know were there. And that's great. That's uh, that makes revisiting things so much more worthwhile. That's one of the reasons why I do this podcast actually, because a lot of the things we do talk about are books, movies, television shows. And so having a panel discussion about it also helps with that kind of thing and seeing everybody's different points of view. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of book, or movies do you like to watch or read? I think I might be a man without taste insofar as um, I can absolutely revel in something that would be considered the worst trash. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but have sort of, you know, quite happily then jump into something that might be considered, you know, quite high art or something. I don't tend mm. to see the barriers, to be quite honest. It's, it's whether it engages with me or I engage with it. So, I mean, the last bunch of films we saw, I mean, one day we watched Goddard's Contempt, my partner had never seen it, but the next day we were watching The Untouchables. <laughs> and, um, you know, in books, you know, I'm quite happy reading a, a, a James Elroy as much as I am reading a, you know, a Dostoevsky. <laughs> you know, this, um, if I could find some ways of being more discerning, I think that would be almost a shame, really, because I, I, I quite like things. I sometimes find that things that have been dubbed trashy or very, very far from quality their brilliance in many ways is that they can get into all those nooks and crannies that so-called quality things can't get into. Mm. And it's one of the reasons I've always sort of championed Doctor Who, because I, without wishing to offend anyone, it's made by people who are you know, consummate professionals and everything. But I don't look upon Doctor Who as being a quality program with a big Q. I think it's better than that, because quality programs couldn't go to the places it goes in the way it goes. And there's something very kind of rude and crude and garish about the show that a quality programme, a quality production, goes, oh, no, we can't do that. That's, 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 but by going to those places, that's where it often scores. It's quite hard to explain the word, but you, you, you can sometimes watch something and go, wow, that's actually more profound than something that sets itself up to be more profound. And yet at the same time, it's absolutely saying, come on, kids, let's just have an adventure. And I love it when those things happen. That's, that, that appeals. That is very interesting. So, I mean, sort of piggybacking off of that, 
did you watch Doctor Who when you were younger? Oh, yes. Um, pretty avidly as well. I mean, I'm, I'm just old enough that I got in on the end of the original series, but it was a very strange time because although I was seeing... Well, now we're talking sort of Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy eras here. Mm -hmm. I was seeing all that. But of course, it was at the same time as things like home video had started. And we used to have a, a mobile video library, like a big truck, packed with some of the earliest, really, VHS videos. And amongst them were the earliest BBC video Doctor Who's. And my dad, knowing I liked the television show when a season was on, he would hire out something for mum and dad to watch. But he would say, oh, well, I'll take, uh, ooh, I'll take the brain of Morbius for the boy, or I'll take the seeds of death. So I had this diet of the Doctor Who I was growing up with, plus a great deal of older stuff because of video. And then in the early 90s, satellite channels started to um, show a, a, a lot of the early stuff from like the Hartnell days. So I, I would say between about 1985 and 1993-ish, huge part of my viewing and then I think just the longer it was off and the the more I sort of advanced on being a teenager it, it fell away for a number of years and I think the combination of the revival and being cast as Ben picked it up again yeah actually this is uh, the closest I think anyone's ever had to the same experience I've had over here in the states because <laughs> we have public television PBS that we call it and so I came in on the t uh, when they were showing the Tom Baker era at my local PBS but they yeah. went through to Colin who was the current doctor at the time and then looped back to Hartnell so within the span of 3 or 4 years I had seen most of the Doctor Who that was still existing yeah. at that time. And so it was really great being able to get it all like that rather than just see like, oh, there's a season and then I have to wait for the next season kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only thing that make, makes me laugh about the whole thing now is when I was cast, I kept it to myself that, um, I, you know, being, that I'd loved it as a kid. And, you know, and, so, and it was one particular day I think I must have been recording about the third story. And Lisa Bauman, who is directing it, who's now a very good friend, said, oh, my God, you're a fan. <laughs> I just didn't bring it into the room because I thought, well, it's a professional situation. They don't need to know. <laughs> and, you know. The last thing they want is probably someone who also likes the series, and, uh, you know, be, not, not quite having their professional head on. But it was the, it was the day she realised, oh, my God, he's a fan. He's just... He's just made a fan point. <laughs> <laughs> did you read the Target novelizations? I did, and I can see. I my my cousin, who's ten years my senior. I'm an only child, and so is he. So we're the closest to sort of siblings, really, that you can possibly get if you are an only child. Mm -hmm. And although Doctor Who wasn't at the forefront of his the things he liked, he did like it. And I remember he had, I, I can even remember which novelizations he had. He, uh, he had the Three Doctors, Nightmare of Eden, one or two others. Mm. And I remember saying to him, can I read them? Can I read them? Um, he must have been about 15 at that point, and I was about seven or eight. And I can remember him saying it back. Yes, but don't turn the pages back and don't break the spine of the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he had things like that, and he had a book that terrified me as a child. It was, I think it was called The Doctor Who Monster Book, and mm. it just had pictures of, uh, from all the stories in the early Tom Baker era, and those pictures terrified me. 
and there'd be like a close-up of you know a crinoid or something and I, I used to pad around the book as a child and sort of tentatively go up and touch it because I was so frightened by the images. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is cool. Do you have a favorite doctor? Um, it's a difficult one uh, because I think, I don't think being an actor gives me any special insight. I really don't. Mm. But sometimes when, you know, watching different, I like the idea of different people playing a part. And particularly when they get the chance to maybe rework it in some way. I do think, though, perhaps, even though I, I've got a, a tremendous admiration for, you know, all the actors who've done it, for me, perhaps in my head or my head canon, I like the idea of the Doctor as being kind of a character that people aren't terribly impressed by. He's sort of, mm-hmm. or she, as, as is the case now, mm-hmm. someone who just is there, who they feel they can rather ignore, but is the most uh, wonderful person in the room. Um, so it, it's the Columbo thing. Mm-hmm. And, and the closest to that for me is Troughton and Sylvester McCoy. Now, Sylvester McCoy was the Doctor when I was a child, so there's an inevitable nostalgic thing there as well. But both of them, I I think, probably stick with me above all else because they've got that kind of... They're not centre-stage Doctors. As much as I think John Pertwee or David Tennant or Tom Baker do these wonderful, more kind of leading men things, Mm -hmm. I do like this thing that Pat Troughton did and Sylvester McCoy did of, of not drawing attention. They're sort of at the edge of the frame. Um, and they're thinking and they're, they're watching and they seem completely ineffective, but they're brilliant. And it is, it's, it's the, the closest thing I can compare it to is either Columbo or maybe one of the sort of Shakespearean fools or something who mm. are always the most intelligent in a scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it also helps, I think, that Troughton and McCoy were also very uh, physically small and mm. so e- easily kind of ignorable or looking kind of you know, weaker in that sense. Yeah, I think there's something about the little person, you know, someone that you know, physically diminutive as well, because I think we associate, I mean, because in, in so many films and so many novels, heroism has often been linked with being physically impressive. And even mm-hmm. the more cerebral heroes, like a, you know, a Basil Rathbone or Sherlock Holmes or something, he's still a physically impressive person, even if he is leading with the brain. But I love this you know, again, as, as with Peter Falk, this idea that this person who you just don't, can't possibly imagine could have the answers or could be inspired, and, and they are. Um, and it, it, I think it probably gives hope for the rest of us who are you know, muscle-bound or whatever, you know, um, yeah. who aren't a James Bond type to go, oh, you can be a hero, look. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I've I've spoken with Sophie Aldred before at a convention, and she talks about how, you know, in her mind, the Doctor is the greatest hero. And, of course, she worked with Sylvester McCoy because he isn't any of those. He's not physically impressive or anything, but just because he uses his mind to solve his problems. And now what's also interesting there is my wife, you know, she's a year older than me, um, but uh, her period of Doctor Who was the same as mine, but she didn't really watch it. Her brother was more the fan. She said, until Ace turned up. Mm. And she said, finally, there was this young woman who felt closer to something that that uh, my partner could sort of understand and relate to. And years and years later, I introduced, bearing my, my wife has come to several conventions and things with me, and she's sort of very cool and, you know, used to hanging around. The only time I ever saw her go, oh, oh, and, and look flustered was when um, I introduced her to Sophie Aldrin. <laughs> of course, she's the most lovely human being, but, mm-hmm. but my partner was, 
oh my God. I mean, and she took a moment to settle down. And I had to say, yeah, you were you kind of you were her childhood hero, you know? <laughs> well, that's a very cool. Oh, yeah, Sophie, uh, she was so nice. I, I met her at Chicago TARDIS uh, one year when she was there. And she was more interested in learning about the people she was talking to than about talking about herself. And that was... She, she, she's lovely. I mean, I've, I've met her at several conventions and... Yeah, or always, yeah, you really do see that side of her, which is mm-hmm. lovely. So you kind of mentioned that you kind of like, you know, different aspects of all the Doctors, but do you have any, because because I know you are a fan now because you're able to name drop stories, so <laughs> you're not talking in generalities. Uh, do you have a favorite Doctor Who story? Oh, uh, yeah, mm, there's, there's probably a few, you know, a few. Uh, that, yeah, but... Well, okay, don't limit it to just one then if you want to, you know, give like your top five or something like that. Okay, I would say, well, let's take, let's take ones from the Doctors I like. I mean, my, mm. my favourite, so with Troughton, I would say The Mind Robber. Mm. The Mind Robber does that thing that I think all really great Doctor Who does. It is, on the surface, absolutely a kind of magical kids' adventure series. Mm-hmm. That is what it is. It's episodic, it has monsters, it has daring do, etc., and then behind that, just the most amazing ideas, really. And for what I quite like about that run as well, which is sort of 68, 69, is Doctor Who is very porous. It, it, it's very good at sort of looking at the world, it, being informed by the world that it's in. But because it's science fiction and fantasy, of course, it does that science fiction fantasy thing where it kind of refracts it through a bit of a kind of misty mirror, really. And um, so you have this story which is very surreal in many respects. And, you know, it's a, this tumble of images and they're not even in a kind of real place. They're in a metaphysical place. And yet the whole thing absolutely chimes with that era's, whether it's intentional or accidental, I couldn't answer, but I, I, it's probably accidental. There's a sort of political radicalism that runs through the end. It's there in the mind robots and the crotons. It's definitely there in the war games, mm-hmm. where this is a story about a worker, a writer, who is being exploited by a system. And it's all getting very Marxist now. He's <laughs> alienated from his work. Mm-hmm. And he's running down, and and this, this this horrible system that the mind robber portrays, which is these um, artistic individuals, uh, people of imagination, writers, what are just being ground down to product level. And I think that juxtaposition of you know this incredibly fantastical story, which is really magical, but with this kind of political bite, really appeals. Mm-hmm. And I think probably from Sylvester's time, it would be Ghostlight. I think it's probably the closest Doctor Who's ever come to being like a David Lynch film. <laughs> um, <laughs> at the same time as having like bits of M.R. James and all sorts of other things. But uh-huh. it, again, it's one of those things where it's like, how on earth did they manage to cram so many ideas into just over an hour, really? It's, mm-hmm. it's just such a, it's such a pit of, of ideas. Definitely one I've gone back to and gone, yep, didn't notice that before. Oh my God, that connected that. Oh, wow, I didn't realize they were talking about that. So they're probably, yeah, they're probably the the ones that really appeal above all. (laughs) No, those are really good choices. Uh, I'm a huge sucker for the mind robber, just personally. Mm. So yeah, I know, I love that one. So do you have a favorite story of the ones that you've recorded for Big Finish? Yeah, um, I, I'd say it was probably the, probably the Outliers, um, which mm. is a Simon Guerrier script. I, I, I think Simon's very, very good at, he plays, I don't, again, intentional or accidental, I don't know, and I've never asked him, but he, he does this thing where 
he seems very good at, at acknowledging that all these stories should be set. The conceit is they're meant to be set in and around the existing 1966 television season. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's very, very good at putting in these carefully laid anachronisms. So there's, in the outliers, he's basically got people using tablets, you know, um, uh, you know tablet computers, basically. Mm-hmm. But he calls them flat computers because, of course, there would have been no corresponding, you know, it would be an, a pure anachronism if he used the, the, the... And he does that kind of thing a lot where he's simultaneously able to suggest that it is a 1966 series and yet informed by the era he's writing in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's both in concepts and also in characterization because they need to... Um, I think it would be really, really difficult to ask a writer who's writing now to not write in such a character-driven way. So the, the, the Big Finish episodes tend to end up in a kind of interesting halfway house between the old and the new series. They acknowledge and they are built on the structure of the old series, but they are a little bit more characterful. Definitely agree with that. And, and certainly for some of the characters that didn't get a lot of development or time in the original series, they've definitely bulked up and given them more to do, which I think is wonderful. And it's not a criticism of the old series. Uh, television genre television from that era just didn't work that way. I mean, mm-hmm. you were building towards a cliffhanger at the end of 25 minutes. It was about events. It was about plot. The idea of interiority in characters on television, you know, generally, certainly in British television, unless it was a very prestigious drama, or a play, a television play, it comes much, much later on. I mean, mm-hmm. probably the first feeling of that doesn't really turn up until the sort of late 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. So how did you get cast as Ben? I did a, when I was at drama school, I, uh, because radio, I, I, I took an interest in radio. Radio, for some reason I can't explain, is, is not considered particularly sexy to young actors. <laughs> <laughs> They don't want to be film stars or you know, mm-hmm. they want to be on at the National Theatre or the, or the Royal Shakespeare Company, which, you know, I did as well. Mm-hmm. But I'd grown up listening to a lot of radio and a lot of audio books and a lot mm. of audio plays. I, I, I'm not actually sure why that was. I think perhaps came from a mother. I think she always tended to have a radio drama on um, if she, when she was sort of about her, her day. So I, was all, I, I really wanted to do this thing called the Carlton Hobbs Award, which was... Um, it was run by the BBC and the, the winner of which would join the BBC's radio drama company. Now we all had to audition for it. And I think because I had a bit of a passion for radio, I, I, I got chosen to do it. And one of the um, pluses that came out of that extra training for radio was that we were given a whole host of names of producers and companies to email or write letters to, to say, hello, we exist. And we're, you know, we're going to be graduating as actors in whatever year it was. And we, we would send a, a reel, a voice reel of um, radio drama excerpts, really. That, uh, and um, my, one of them was for Big Finish. And I was quite excited by that because I was aware of Big Finish. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe one day I could get three lines in a talk to <laughs> Big Finish or something. <laughs> it just so happened by, I think the, um, the gods were on my side. When my reel hit the mat <laughs> of Big Finish Towers was at the point they were considering recasting Ben. And one of my pieces was from a radio play called Love and Money, which was about an early 20-something East End of London boy. So I was doing a Cockney accent. 
And that was then combined with one of the people who trained me, bumped into Lisa Bowerman at some kind of gathering or event and said, could you, if you get a chance, I, I know that a, a young actor called Elliot Chapman has sent a, a, a letter. Can you, can, can you give that another listen? Because uh, I think he could be, it was, it was just very nice on the part of this teacher who was recommending me. And luckily Lisa said, yes, I heard that. And funnily enough, we were thinking about getting in touch with him. And an email duly popped in to, um, onto my computer screen while I was in the dressing room of a play I was doing. <laughs> and the play was running, so I had to do everything in my, in my, that I could possibly do, not to scream a big yes! <laughs> um, but I was so shocked. I had to reread it several times. I thought, Hang on a moment, Ben Jackson's, ben Jackson's a companion. He's not just some random guest actor who dies in episode three. <laughs> so that was a bit of a shocker. Oh. Since you were familiar with fandom and, and being a fan, were you worried about the fan reaction to recasting, Ben? Well, I, I wasn't familiar with fandom. Although I'd been a fan as a kid, mm. I never, and I, you know, I loved Doctor as a kid, but I, I'd, never, I'd never come into contact with organized fandom. So I'd never done anything like a convention. But I knew enough that if you go into something which people are very passionate and, about and protective of, it's important not to, well... <laughs> Just just mind where you're treading, I think it would be the best metaphor I'd use, really. So I thought, you know, this could go... And I do remember the producer, after the first one I did, saying... Because I, I, I think I'm right in saying I'm the very first established Doctor Who character that they recast. Because mm -hmm. they would want to be very careful as well about doing it. And I do remember him saying to me at the end, thank you very, very much for the work and the effort you put into this. If you don't hear from us again it's because it hasn't landed. But thank you so much anyway. So I think they were almost ready to go, this doesn't carry on. If this doesn't land with the audience, we will probably quietly drop in. So yeah, there was, a, there was an awareness that it could go either way. But to tell you the truth, even if I only did four episodes, it's still quite a nice thing to tick off. <laughs> right. list of sort of, you know, I'm going to Doctor Who. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, if I ever got to work in any way in an official capacity for Doctor Who, I would be over the moon. Yeah, so it was, it was to, to be told later, it, it's okay. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they seem to be okay. <laughs> we'll try another. Hmm. And it sort of went like that. We'll try another. Okay, we'll try another now. Well, that's good. Have you heard, like, or have you looked yourself at any of the direct feedback on, you know, how people were receiving the stories? Or have you kind of just held back from that? No, I haven't, because I think the problem, it, it's the same sort of problem that happens when actors do theatre. I'm definitely that actor who says to other actors or other people in a, in a company, please don't tell me what the reviews are. Mm. I think the problem is, regardless of whether it's positive or negative, if you've worked on a, a play for, you know, you've rehearsed for three or four weeks, and um, then you read the reviews, I think they can start to affect the future performances, but those performances have been worked out with your director. <laughs> and if you start even unwittingly modifying them because of things you've read, the whole house of cards comes tumbling down, really. And it was the similar thing with, um, with this. Uh, again, it's that, it, it's a sort of conundrum or a paradox, really. Actors have, I think people, to be a competent actor, you've got to be thin-skinned enough to be able to find to find emotions quickly, to be able to do them on camera or on a mic or on stage. But you've got to be kind of thick-skinned as well to survive the industry. 
Now, those two things don't go together. So I always think one of the best things to avoid then is any kind of notice or comment, message board, review, because if you see lovely messages, it's all going to be ego from that point on. And the danger is you think you're untouchable. I'm brilliant. I've got it down. There's nothing I can do now that will stop the goodwill coming my way. Then you screw up. Or you read how a load of people kind of, you know, wish you didn't exist. <laughs> how dare you? So it, it's, um, I always think it's best just not to. Well, that's understandable. What is your process for recreating Ben Jackson? It sort of actually really kind of leads on to your last question, knowing that this was a character that had been established. It's not like doing Hamlet. I mean, mm-hmm. the thing is, if I, if I had ever been cast to play Hamlet, the audience that goes to the RSC or the Globe does not want to see Jonathan Price's version or David Warner's version or David Tennant's version or Derek Jack. They want to see a new version. This doesn't work that way. And I knew it, it wouldn't because there is... Mike Craze created Ben as much as his producer and writer did. And I'm playing with, I'm, I'm, I'm acting with Annika Wills and Fraser Hines, who are from the original cast. So to, I, I knew that the best thing I could do was to try and get as close to Mike, uh, Mike Craze, as possible. Now that sets up, a, 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 set up initially a bit of a worry because I thought, well, I'm not an impressionist. That's not my skill. I'm not like John Coulshaw or Jacob Dudman. Mm-hmm. That's not where my talent lies. And in fact, I can hear a huge difference between how Mike and I do it. And it's always really lovely and sweet and at conventions and things or when feedback has got to me and people say, Oh, you sound just like Mike. And I think, Oh God, well, I've got away with that. (laughs) (laughs) I know how voices work because of my drama school training, Mm -hmm. but again, it's a tremendous talent to be able to completely accurately mimic someone. So I thought, well, I'll use the knowledge that I've got to get as close as possible to what Mike does. And that just meant watching or listening to the episodes he was in, depending whether they still existed, again and again and again, to sort of hear what he was doing. But then, of course, there comes a point where you realise that you've reached the end of the plank and and you go off into the sea, because the, the things I had were copies of episodes with him in so I could hear him. But of course, I had no idea what his, his intentions as an actor were. They're completely unknown to me. And also, we're working in different media. He was working five cameras, three wall sets, mics overhead, which prompted a more theatrical performance from actors in the 60s because they had to be heard. I've got a very, very, very sensitive, up-to-date microphone, and I'm in a booth. So even the very medium is going to alter the kind of performance I give. So it was a case of don't go in trying to reinvent the wheel. You're only going to annoy the audience that want to hear that link to the original series. But at the same time, do allow the fact that there's going to be some drift and allow your own intentions as an actor to play through. Because if you're constantly worried, well, what would Mike's intention be here? The game is lost. You just have to trust yourself. And now I can tell, I mean, I can really see, I can really detect differences between the ways we play it. But thankfully, they're not so marked, I think, that the audience completely loses a sense that it is the same character, I hope. 
do you find that constraining to have to, you know, like you said, it's different from Hamlet where Hamlet, you could do your own interpretation of Hamlet, or would you rather have that sort of freedom? Or do you find that it's sort of comforting to have something that helps you hone in your performance? I've got a predilection, I think, for the technical. And one of the things that, you know, it's a funny thing, I, you know, of course, like all actors, what you want to do is inhabit the character and, and, and sort of do something with it that is completely, completely your own and everything. However, one of the things that I found thrilling about whatever medium I'm in is having to cope with the contexts of that medium. So one of the exciting things about, say, doing television is that, yes, you're trying to be truthful in a scene to whatever the, uh, the, the, the drama is, but you've got to have so much of a percentage of your technical brain thinking about your continuity, where your eye line is. And it's the same on the stage. You're constantly adjusting and readjusting to the audience, to what the other actor might throw at you, which might have a different intention on it. So being of a technical bent, if you like, I actually rather liked having this situation where, okay, that's how Mike Craze has established this character. How do I fit in with that while at the same time dealing with this entirely new text? I find that fun to do, but I can understand why another actor would go, oh God, uh, what do you want me to be here? Just a sort of cover version of someone else. But I think if you go in with that attitude, you're never going to get it. But I think if you go in with the thing of, here's something someone else has set up, how can I work within it, but also just gently try and push at the edges of it? That's exciting. But I think, it's, I think it's probably, as I say, because I, there's, there's a lot about the technical side of acting that gives me pleasure. It's not just about abandoning myself to a character. Some actors are like that and that, you know, that's great, but I, I like the technical side. Are there any aspects of Michael's performance that you felt really informed yours? On the technical side, definitely, because I realized quite early on, I thought I had the voice down because I'd watched The War Machines. And then a little later on, I was listening to The Macro Terror, and it suddenly dawned on me, oh my God, his voice is different. It wasn't the accent, it was where he placed it. In the early stories, now I talked to Annika about this, and I thought, this is fascinating. Now this could just be an actor getting to grips with a character, or it could have been the working situation. Maybe he was either a bit more relaxed later on for whatever reason. But I noticed that in the war machines, he was using a more oral voice. So he would introduce himself as, Abel Seaman Ben Jackson, sir. So it was all up there. Once you get to the later episodes where he's working with Patrick Troughton, it becomes a pharyngeal voice. So it's all back down in the throat a bit more. So lines like... Um, Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a, a decent Ben line. Oh, nuts. So it's all back. So I thought, now where does this happen and, where, and why does it change? So there was a technical thing to incorporate there. Now, it's very likely that nobody in the audience had even considered that. But I felt it was an important thing to hit on so that if we did a story, say, earlier on, I could choose the oral voice. But if we chose, but if we were doing a story in continuity terms that was later on, I could use the pharyngeal voice. But apart from that, I think on a on a pure acting level, that he sets up a very very useful kind of tenor, which is he plays he's, he plays a kind of antagonism, Mike, 
there's a scepticism about Ben when he's in the situation and then he peels it away and there's a gentleness underneath. So I always knew that his, as long as I played his reactions to a new situation as being, he's sceptical, he's on the back foot, whereas Polly is inquisitive and a little bit more, I'm interested in this. She, she tends to go with the flow more. Then I've got really the beginning part of every scene down, as long as it doesn't contradict the text. And then we can peel the onion, which of course he does as well and you know, reveal that gentler side. But it a- makes absolute sense to me because he's the working class Cockney boy, probably born within earshot of, um, of Bow Bells, probably very street smart, tough. So his, his exterior is going to be tough, no nonsense. But then later you get the chance to have a bit of an insight into the gentler side of Ben, which is definitely there. He's a very compassionate character. If you had not been cast as Ben, and you had been given free reign, you could be any doctor, companion, villain, alien race in Doctor Who, what, <laughs> what would you have liked to play? Well, I've, I've been really fortunate in one sense because I've been able to play other characters than mm-hmm. Ben. And one of the characters that was created for me by Guy Adams was a character called the Player, mm-hmm. who was a Time Lord, uh, left Gallifrey ahead of the Doctor. He's a bit... Uh, but rather than having the sort of agency that the Doctor has and wanting to get involved, the, the player is much more chameleonic. He, he, he blends in and he, he doesn't like to get involved. But the whole story that was written for the player, um, which was called The Plague of Dreams, was about the, the Doctor being out of action and the player having to step up to the plate and basically be a Doctor-like character. So for this one story, I got as close as one could to playing the Doctor. And the thing that made me laugh when I listened to it back, because I don't really listen to things back, but this one sort of was on my mind a bit because I thought, how have I done that? And all the way through, I just thought, oh my God, for some reason, I'm playing the fifth Doctor. (laughs) (laughs) The tone of my voice and everything, I thought, this is like a a bad Peter Davison. <laughs> I wanted to listen to it every day. But then I thought, my God, if, if there had been, ever been a quirk of fate where, you know, I had the chance to play the Doctor, that's probably my default way of playing it for some reason. But he had that kind of, the player, I mean, he had that kind of breathless enthusiasm just trying to keep the story going. I thought, my God, that's so Peter Davison. <laughs> I was kind of pleased in a way. But I think if someone had said to me, you're going to be cast in Big Finish next year to play a companion, but I'm not going to tell you which one. I would never have thought Ben. I actually would have thought, given my track record as an actor, because unfortunately, as much as we try not to be, and this is why Ben was a gift, really, because it allowed me to be versatile. Very often, we are cast to be that which we readily present. So if someone had said to me, you're going to play a companion in Doctor Who, I went, ah, Harry Sullivan. (laughs) Because that's the kind of character I usually get. This Uh rather ex-public schoolboy you know, slightly affable upper class type. Mm. So getting Ben was great because I thought, oh, I bet, I bet it, I bet it'll be, I bet it'll be Harry S. <laughs> <laughs> Who I've now discovered has just been recast. Yes, yes, yeah. he has. Yeah. So there you go, and it's not me. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's going to be very interesting hearing him and uh, Sadie. Uh, uh, oh, Sadie, is it Miller? Uh, yeah. Sarah, Elizabeth Sladen's daughter. I mean, there was an actress I worked with on a tour of an Arthur Miller play. Oh, another Miller. 
called Rebecca Robson. A lovely time with her. And she trained alongside Sadie Miller. Mm. There you go. Um, they, were, they were both at drama school together. But I think for a while, once they graduated, although Sadie is a trained actress, I think she really pushed off into writing in a big way. But yeah, I read all this this morning. So I thought, oh, that's, that's lovely. Yeah, no, big, big Finish is definitely, I mean, it was first you, then it was Tim, and now it seems like they're doing this in a big way of doing like, hey, if there's a character that's no, because they've recast Liz Shaw, they've recast the Brigadier, you know, they're, they're really pushing forward with, you know, if they're no longer with us, let's have a new actor uh, try it out. See how it can be, I, I honestly do completely understand how it can be a contentious thing. Mm-hmm. And I think they played a long game, understandably. And perhaps I had that benefit, really, of because Ben and Polly's stories, so many of them were missing. They're only really sort of coming to the fore now with the animated DVDs, mm-hmm. where they, have, they were perhaps with the best will in the world to Mike and Annika, who did fantastic work. But they weren't as well remembered as, say, Sarah Jane, mm-hmm. because they not only was playing the companion in stories that completely exist, but by that point, the series was international and she came back and had her own shirt. I mean, lest we forget. So I, I can understand why they didn't start with really iconic. And I think they played a careful game with Tim as well by making, I think they, I'm right in saying they made his stories more driven by Katie as Joe to, to sort of bring him in. But uh, yeah, but I think it's probably been helped by the fact that the television series now has is, is, is established that, do you know what? It doesn't take anything away from the first person who played this part. They will always be the first person who played it. But yes, David Bradley can be the Doctor along with William Hartnell. You know, I think the TV show's helped. It's almost given it a little bit of a unacceptable veneer really that we're now in the era where not only can different actors play different doctors but different actors can play the same doctor mm-hmm. and different actors can play the same companion i think just as long as the actor is respectful of the original and is aware of how damn important this is to the fan base that they don't upset the apple car then it, there's there's a chance i think there will always be people who go no it, it's, it's not for me but it's interesting I've done conventions where I'm really happy to to, to hear from people who say, I I didn't like this idea, but I gave whatever it was, um, the Morton legacy or or, um, the Yes Men a try. And I I, I rather like it now. I'm, I'm, I'm getting used to it, which is great. Yeah, I, I find it's different for me because like listening to you or listening to Tim, there's so much where it feels like, especially since you have the, you know, you have Fraser and Annika with you. And there's this sort of, I guess the word is almost verisimilitude, mm. right? Because you have people who were authentically there along with you, and that really helps. I really struggle with the first Doctor Adventures that they're doing now, where it's all David Bradley and it's all the other actors that they've recast Susan, Ian, Barbara, the whole original yeah. cast. And it's really difficult for me because it's so different. Mm. Mm. Because all four of them are different. Yeah, I think it's always going to be uh, a situation whereby we, we always have to make leaps when, when we think about it. I mean, mm-hmm. I think if people approach, it's like with, I mean, Annika's extraordinary because uh, she's got such an ability to ping back into her poly voice. Mm-hmm. Such an ability, it's amazing. But I think it's fair to say that not every actor working in Big Finish can absolutely recreate the voice they had back whenever it was. Mm -hmm. I don't think, but I think people are more than happy to make the leap there. I think that people are happy to make the leap with the fact that um, 
for example, the incidental music isn't recorded by a chamber orchestra. Mm. It's recorded on modern synths. So there's another leap. But they have to be incremental leaps. I think that uh, if David Bradley and Jamie Glover and the others hadn't been on the television, it might have been a harder sell. But I can understand it being, oh, it's just one leap too far, maybe, from for certain members of the audience, as you've said. However, I think ultimately what it'd be nice, I think what we'll get to is we'll get to a point where everyone will go, Doctor Who is something that exists in so many multiple continuities. And that's actually a strength rather than a weakness. So rather, I think people will stop trying to push it into one continuity. And I think it will, both the television series and Big Finish and whatever, I think we'll go, we're on, I feel like we're on the cusp of entering a period where it will explode and, and people will just accept a lot of differences, even contradictions, because it will be like the Doctor Who multiverse, really. And then I think it will be, people will feel more comfortable. But I think it just needs the tipping point. And whatever that will be, I don't know. But uh, I can certainly see in five years' time people just being thoroughly happy with the idea of William Hartnell and Carol Ann Ford are the Doctor and Susan and David Bradley. And unfortunately, the actress's name escapes me. They're also the Doctor and Susan. Right. <laughs> I, I think that will happen. But, mm. but these things take time. Sure. So we talked about recasts of the television and whatnot. If you were ever asked to play Ben on television, is that something that you would like to do? Well, depending on the kind of story they're right, I would first, I mean, if they asked me to play him in the same era, I'd have to lose 20 years of my life right. <laughs> for a start, which I wouldn't mind, actually. I think <laughs> being 20 years old again would be lovely, uh, or in some respect. They can do a lot with makeup these days. <laughs> but the other problem is, of course, I'm five foot 11 and dark haired, mm. and uh, Mike was about five foot eight and blonde. <laughs> so it's. Um, I'm not surprised that the telephone didn't ring when they, um, they did the Peter Capaldi story with, with Ben and Polly mm -hmm. because I just don't look anything like Ben. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I'd, of course, I'd never say no. I've had a couple of brushes with the television series, but unfortunately never, never passed the audition stage. But, mm. uh, but, but I mean, there was one that I've been... I haven't actually seen the season that's just finished. I'm, I'm always a bit of a jolly come lately to everything. But I kept asking people who were in the know, can you look out for a character called Samson? Because this was a character I, uh, I was up for. Now, either Samson was written out or the character had his name changed because people just kept going, well, there's no character called Samson in series 12. And I went, oh, damn, the character has been written out. <laughs> so that was the closest I've got from the television series in recent years. <laughs> you, you can always imagine that, well, if they hadn't written it out, it would have been me. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I've, I've definitely got that much of an ego. <laughs> <laughs> Out of curiosity, have you met um, Ben Craze or anyone from Michael's family? Um, I had a lovely, I've had a lovely correspondence with Ben Craze, who was just lo so lovely. I mean, I, I, I thought, you know, I, I remember thinking it's probably the respectful thing to do just to at least say, you know, hi, you know, I am now playing this part that your dad created. Um, I'm really enjoying it. I'm endeavouring to try and do it in the in the way that he set down. And I never expected a reply, but I had this lovely um, exchange of messages with Ben, who's an absolute gentleman. And he was, I think he was pleased that, you know, again, I wasn't leaving Mike's interpretation out of the equation. 
it wasn't me trying to recreate, uh, sorry, trying to bottom up rewrite something. It was me going, no, I, I want to be a continuation of that as much as is possible. You know, we've been talking a lot about Ben, but you've also performed as the first doctor in the bonfires and the vanities and a little bit in the plague of dreams. Yeah. Uh, so how was that different from doing Ben? The one thing that you realize is as much again as, you know, I said, you know, at the very top, I'm not an impressionist, but I thought, well, I better try and get as close as possible. So I, I, I did exactly the same thing as I did with Ben, even though it was far fewer lines, but I sat down with copies of Bill Hartnell doing things and trying to get that cadence, that speech pattern. But the realization that you have, of course, is you can't, no matter how good an actor you are, you can't fake sounding older. Um, so when I, I asked Lisa Bauman, who was directing, I said, Can I, you know, as long as it doesn't slow us down, because we're always up against the clock at Big Finish, trying mm -hmm. to record two episodes a day. I said, may I just hear back what I've done? And I did, and I went, okay. Um, it does sound like a younger man doing it, but there's no way for me to literally, you know, short of going to the bathroom and trying to damage my vocal folds in some <laughs> way to try and simulate age. <laughs> It was the best I could do. <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't go to that degree. <laughs> that's, that's too much method, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I actually, I think it's fascinating because Peter Purvis, of course, has done William Hartnell and William Russell has done William Hartnell and you've done William Hartnell. And I think that it's fascinating how the three of you each do William Hartnell and they're all like very authentic, but they're all oh, very no. different. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, like I said, I, I've got that difficulty of, you know, it, it, when I heard it back, it just sounds like a guy in his 30s trying to be. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, that, no I'm, I'm very flattered by that. But again, his voice is fascinating because it's really interesting to hear, particularly with Hartnell and Troughton, because the recording schedule was pretty brutal. I mean, you know, they were doing like 40 odd episodes a year. And it was like rep theatre, you know, they had to learn the lines very fast. As actors, their ways of coping with the fact that it's not possible, it just isn't possible to do any more and tap those lines to the side of your head when you've got so many and you're doing it so quickly. And Hartnell, of course, unfortunately, because of his illness as well, would lose lines. But, mm. he, but um, he had this sort of coping mechanism, which he, he, he almost chased down the line. He, he, he created those things like, the, hmm, aha, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a sort of melody to the way he speaks where he starts the line and then sort of chases it at the end with this gruffer voice, <laughs> yes. stop it falling away. Whereas what Troughton does, and Fraser let me in on this, and of course Fraser tries to do, well, doesn't try, he does do it mm. as well, is to create this idea of when Pat was losing a line, he wouldn't get flustered. He would just, uh, ah, that would come in. So it would be like, there, so there, ah, and then he would find the light. So he would look sort of skywards, and then that made it look as though he was thinking through the plot, mm -hmm. <laughs> which then made him look like an incredibly interior actor. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I've heard, I, I've never heard Bill Russell do it. I, I must do it, but I've heard Peter do it, and it's lovely. It's just so charming and enchanting. And it's lovely because Peter Purvis is, he, even, you know, now, all these years on, he's got so much respect for Bill Hartnell. It, 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 he genuinely has this sort of, it, like an acting hero, it, it, because he taught, Peter says he taught him a lot about how to act for, you know, acting close-ups and that sort of intricacy that, that Bill Hartnell had. 
it's love and it's a lovely performance he gives yeah so like uh just to to let you know so peter plays more you know if you've seen hartnell's stories uh, he has this two sides to him he has this this sort of comedic side the side where he just sort of loves getting under people's skin and stuff like that and sort of needling them and he also had this very harsh very you know authoritarian side bill russell does that authoritarian side so perfectly well whereas i think peter has that more impish yeah you know quality of hartnell very very well and they're two different interpretations that have spun off of both actors having a great deal of respect for william hartnell and having watched his performance and really sort of letting it seep into them but they've taken different aspects of that performance and accentuated them more and so it's very very interesting comparing the two i think the thing they ought to do really is is to put them both in the same story both playing the first doctor both mm. playing aspects of the first doctor we're, we're used to the idea of doctors meeting but it's always different doctors put them both in a story where the same where the first doctor meets himself and then you've you can explore those aspects of the person those different personalities and then it it reinforces how layered and nuanced Bill Hartnell's characterization was. I'd love that. Before Peter Purvis's first Doctor meets Bill Russell's first Doctor. That could be brilliant. <laughs> and both of them are still... So I mean, I, I sort of boggle at the fact that Bill Russell's in his 90s and still can do these great performances on audio. Yeah, I mean, he's such an impressive figure, really. <laughs> and it... I mean, he's got this association with Doctor Who, of course, and being, by being one of the first companions. But, I mean, he was such a successful film and television actor. And his son is fantastic as well. I, um, when I was on a show in the West End two years ago, and Alfie Enoch, Bill Russell's son, was in a play just down the road by Mark Rothko. And he's great. He's, he's just, he's a very charismatic actor as well. And, you know, just um, sickening, isn't it, really? You know, it just runs in the family. <laughs> <laughs> Just comes naturally. <laughs> so were you intimidated? You know, we talked about fan reaction, whether or not you, you know, you thought much about that. But were you intimidated by the fact that you were going to be working with Annika and Fraser, who actually knew Michael and, and whether or not that would be difficult? Yes, and, and, and far more than I was about the fan reaction, because I thought with the fan reaction, I won't meet the people. And um, if this doesn't work out, like I said, you know, it's four episodes, that was fun, and move on. But yeah, it was different with Annika and Mike because, uh, sorry, Annika and Fraze, because um, it wasn't just the fact that they'd all worked together. It would almost have been, in a way, slightly better if they, if I came to it in 2014, which was the very first time I recorded with them. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't been together since 66, 67. But of course, that wasn't the case. They'd all done conventions together for years. Mike and Annika had maintained a very strong friendship up until Mike died. So, yeah, I was a little bit nervous going in thinking, I don't want them to think I'm coming in to ride roughshod over this or just be just not interested in, in, in what Mike did. What was really lovely, as I said, being quite a technical actor, some actors are very, very intuitive, very instinctive. They, they're just able to act. I'm someone who needs to build a bit more scaffolding around him. So my script was covered in a lot of notes, my first script. Notes, I had little cross sections of a, of a head with arrows pointing to different parts of the mouth to know, to remind me how Mike would approach a line and you know, things like that. And I also had little notes from the stories I'd heard or watched to, to make sense of certain things. And Annika saw my script covered in notes and it just 
it, it couldn't have been a better start because she looked at me and went, oh my God, you're taking this really seriously. <laughs> and I went, well, yeah. And she smiled and she said, good for you. And that, and, and, and that just set up our relationship then. I think she was thankful that I just didn't come in and just treat it as any old thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I was great. In a way, I was grateful she'd seen my script. <laughs> <laughs> but they're, they're, so, they're such genuinely lovely people that, uh, that the nerves were dispelled very early on. Fraser's so good at creating a kind of buoyant atmosphere as well. Because, you know, there's 10,000 jokes in his head. There's 10,000 ways he can disarm the situation. He's very good at welcoming the guest actors. And Annika's just got this, um, just this lovely, quiet, welcoming quality as, as well. So they sort of, they spark off each other well. And by about the third scene being recorded, it, it just felt like being with friends. It was lovely. Yeah, there are two other people that I hope I have a fraction of their energy when I'm the same age that they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, they're, they're, they really are extraordinary. When I did the Chicago TARDIS, we turned up and my wife came with me and we were all at the hotel. And it really was the sort of Troughton Mafia because it was the late, wonderful Debbie Watling. It mm-hmm. was Wendy Padbury, it was Annika, it was Fraser, and it was me as the sort of uh, new boy in the, in the Troughton Mafia. Mm-hmm. And we, we're all looking at each other. Bearing in mind, they're all around 70 or 70 plus. And I, at that point, was, you know, 30-something or other. And they went, right, let's get out. There's a brilliant jazz bar about three blocks away. We're going to... And I looked at them and went, I'm shattered. I've just done a, a long-haul flight. And then I went, what are you talking about? I said, oh, I was sort of thinking about having a quiet drink and going to bed. And boy, they were gone. They were gone out back, back at the hotel three o'clock in the morning. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> just like, talk about the life force, you know? <laughs> I'll tell you, because I I was there at that Chicago TARDIS, and you also had the very first panel of the day, you and Fraser and Tim. And so, yeah, so that means Fraser not only was out all night, he was there ready for the very first panel of the day on Friday morning. Extraordinary. (laughs) (laughs) He is like that. It's it's just, Peter Purvis once said to me, he said, oh, we, we would... Again, at the Chicago TARDIS, because I adored Peter, he's great. Mm. But, uh, and he said, oh, I think Fraser just decided that reaching 18 years of age was enough, and he just stopped, <laughs> which I thought was a lovely way of putting it. It's just all this energy and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so it was announced, or I think you renounced on Twitter several months ago, that you would no longer be playing Ben Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Why is that, that you won't be playing Ben? There's a cluster of reasons, really. These things usually are, aren't they? It's never mm-hmm. usually one thing. I had this really busy year in 2018. I've never worked so much as an actor. It, it was pretty much the whole year round. And for an actor of my low-profile jobbing actor, that's quite impressive. I mean, that doesn't usually happen. The downside of it was I was, I was not at home at all. I didn't see my partner much. And although it was wonderful to be playing all different parts and stuff, it did feel like quite a lot of life was on hold. So as we were going into 2019, I said, I don't think I'm going to get a year like 2018 again in a hurry. I think that was just an unusual spike in the career. But I'm going to ask my agent if we can just scale back a bit. I'm very, very fortunate that about 30 minutes drive from where I live, there's a recording studio. I do a lot of work with them audiobooks and, and the like. So I thought I might just do a year of doing that, maybe doing some teaching, 
just to feel again what it was like at being home. And then as 29 sort of carried on, it gradually developed into, do I actually want to go full-time back into acting? I, I think, I mean, it comes to some of us occasionally, you know, yes, it's a passion and yes, it's the thing I always wanted to do, but um, it's, um, you kind of do become aware of, it's, it, I mean, it is hard because you, you don't, there's no progression as such unless you have a real break and you become, you know, a, a much in demand actor or a star or something. But, you know, you finish a wonderful job and you are back to square one. And, and it's about auditions and self-tapes and running around the country trying to be seen. And that carousel can become a bit much. So I thought, oh, I don't know how much I really want to jump back on that horse, really. And around about that time, it occurred, I, I'd realised or I'd read somewhere that I'd just about done as many episodes of for Big Finish as Ben, as Mike had done for television and I thought, well, that's an interesting coincidence. Here I am thinking about my future as an actor. And I've also reached this kind of milestone with Ben. And it, it just sort of played away in my mind. I thought, mm, does it seem a bit unseemly to do more episodes than he did? So that started to play on my mind a bit. And I thought, well, well I love working with Annika and Fraser and Lisa. I've become a really good friend of Ian Atkins, who's the producer of the Companion Chronicles range. And then it was just, and then I thought, mm, I am the kind of person who likes to see an exit. I'm very admiring of people who can really sort of dig into something. I mean, Fraser's a classic example, not only because he's, he played Doctor Who for four years in the 60s, uh, he did 25 years in a very well known soap opera in the UK mm -hmm. playing a character. He's been a, a mainstay at conventions. He's very good at that. I, being a very different kind of person, find that if I jump into something, I can have a wonderful time with it, but I've got half an eye looking for the exit sign. So there was another part of me went, hmm, you've done four years playing Ben. Do you want to do a fifth, a sixth, a seventh? How long are you going to push this? And are you happy doing more episodes than Mike? Are you happy doing more conventions? Aren't you worried the gloss is going to come off a bit? and then it it's something you do out of habit rather than something because you really want to do. And in the end, I thought, okay, I, I think maybe having these thoughts is in itself the answer to these thoughts. So I thought, I've just achieved one really amazing thing on a personal level, which was to be in something with David Warner, who's an acting hero of mine. <laughs> and I did this story, The Crumbling Magician, and I went, this could be a good point. To... So I spoke to um, Annika and Fraser. I, th I did say to them, look, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I might step back. I've had a very good run. And, that's... and then it was just a case of thinking, okay, um, am I committed to this? And I thought, yes, I, th I think I am probably committed to this. And get out before you're found out is the old thing. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a combination of reasons. And I don't know... This is a curious time, and not only because of the lockdown and, and everything, but even before that, because I'm, I think 2019 and 2020 has been very much about me going, right, okay, wh wh what is my relationship to the industry I have worked in for 10 years? Do I want to, you know, work with And I, I just think getting off the carousel might make things clear for, for a bit, see where it goes.
Yeah, I appreciate you giving that response because, of course, speculation has run rampant online and, you know, it's been, it, it, it's, it's kind of silly. Um, so <laughs> I, can, I can understand that because it's, um, I think sometimes when people leave things that there might be a feeling that something's happened or, mm-hmm. and you can be doing the best job in the world. And frankly, being able to play a character like Ben, who is so out of the thing I would normally be cast for. Which I'm, you know, which is always something as an actor you're grateful for. You only remember the roles. Well, it's not that you only remember them, but the roles that you that always come first to your mind are the roles where someone took a punt on you being out of your usual casting. And for me, it's Ben, and I was lucky enough uh, on the stage to play Renfield in a stage version of Liz Lockhead's Dracula. And when I went for that audition. I'd gone to be seen for Dr. Seward or Jonathan Harker because those were the obvious characters I was going to be cast as. And the director looked at me and said, can I just ask you to read for Renfield? And I thought, well, that's nice. And then he rung me up and said, I'd like you to play Renfield. And I said, why? <laughs> not, not because I didn't want to, but it's just very few directors or casting directors or producers would have seen me in that. He said, I just think you'll bring something different to it because it's not the part that you would readily be asked to play. Hmm. So it ended up being one of the most wonderful experiences as an actor. To be, I felt like I was led off the leash. And it's the same with Ben, to be playing this sort of guy in his early 20s who's physically brave. I, I get to do an accent. He's so different from me. is enormously rewarding because normally I have to play guys kind of like me. That's how my industry works. So you don't leave a part easily, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, what if the, maybe not the next one, or maybe not even the one after that, but what if the one after that, I unwittingly phone it in because I just feel as though I know him too well. So yeah, that all came into play. Really. That's understandable. Is there anything that you feel like, oh, I, it would have been nice if I had had a story with this particular character or alien race or anything like that, that you had an idea for, but, you know, just because of, you know, leaving the part when you did, there was no more room for more stories. There's always a part of you that thinks that if you haven't done a Dalek story, that <laughs> something with it. So, yeah, that, that would have been kind of cool to have heard that voice mm-hmm. from another booth. But I do remember thinking... I, I, by having a conversation with Lisa Greenwood, of course, who plays Flip Jackson. I remember thinking, are you meant to be my, like, related to me or something? <laughs> you know, are you my granddaughter or something? We concocted this story whereby Flip introduces her doctor, so Colin's doctor, to her grand and granddad, who would just look at him and go, yeah, yeah, we know who he is. We might not know <laughs> this particular, but I think, as it turned out, Jackson is just a pure coincidence. So uh, there was always part of me thought, oh, it'd be great to do a crossover story with Flip and Colin's doctor. Mm-hmm. But that was, I think, more a pipe dream of Lisa Greenwood and me <laughs> than anything they were ever going to do. But no, I mean, it was, it was great to play as this sort of almost doctor substitute for the player. I got to do a story with Tom Baker and Lou Jameson playing a different character, mm-hmm. which was fantastic. Uh, my, one of my best working memories, uh, really, because it was a big story, that one. And I think it was a six-parter, so it had mm-hmm. a bigger cast. And they were a lovely cast. But Tom Baker just... I was holding my sides because he, he was just so funny. <laughs> and it's the, almost the worst thing in the world when you're going into a, a, a recording booth and your, your ribs are aching and you can't think of the performance because he's just made you laugh continuously for about 15 minutes. <laughs> but he was just fantastic. He, he did this wonderful thing. 
which is the reason he's so amazing as the doctor of course is because he's really like that mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had this moment where he had to ride into a village on or a city on the back of a winged dinosaur mm-hmm. so the scene started and he, and he suddenly started no 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 i i can't possibly do this and the director said, why what's wrong tom he said well we haven't been introduced <laughs> <laughs> then, so, that, so i mean you know that's it we were all like Snickering like schoolboys and schoolgirls, and he said, "No, no, no! You can't have this uh, this this winged creature and not give it a name. I have an idea. We'll call it Rosinante." <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that was a bit of but that's just so Tom. He he's he would rewrite things on the hoof. He had a scene with. I still remember this to this day. The line in the in the script was something like, "Your village defences wouldn't stop a determined Dalek." And Tom stopped the recording. No, 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 it's too obvious. We must, no, no, we don't want to be banal. Uh, we, we want to excite the fans. We want to surprise them. He said, what about your village de- defences wouldn't stop a current bun? <laughs> immediately everyone's again giggling. But it's such a Tom thing. It's such a Tom's doctor thing to say. And it's like, you know, but he's played the part for 40 years on and off. He knows what, what the line should be. <laughs> so, you know, there was, Getting the chance to do things like that is, you know, I, I don't feel as though anything were denied me, not at all. Would you do uh, more work for Big Finish uh, in a different role? I don't know whether it would happen. Well, just because I think, you know, the associations with uh, Ben are quite strong. And mm. there's also, I mean, they did give me other roles to play as well as Ben. But I also think that, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of actors out there that deserve a crack at, at, at these things. I mean, never, I, I'd never say never, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, it's, um, but of course it, it's just how you do it without, I, I wouldn't like to create a situation in which people thought, oh, Elliot's doing this story as this character, maybe he'll come back as Ben. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think that would be a little unfair on the audience because it, it's like setting up sort of false narratives really. So, Sure. So I know during lockdown, you're not able to do much, but is there anything that you either finished before this started that's coming up or anything that you're going to be able to work on from home that you want to mention? I've been approached to do some things, some radio, audio things from home, which is going to involve me being sent certain equipment in order to be able to do it, I think, which should be interesting. Mm hmm. So, yeah, it's going to be something that will be, I think, directed over the telephone and maybe the actors might be in different parts of the country and see how that works. I think actually, given how much radio and audio production has moved on, that can be done pretty seamlessly now. It's always nice when all actors are in the same room and you can catch each other's eyes and but actually the editing now is, is so amazing. I mean, we did a story with Annika and I a companion chronicle story, which Fraser was at the beginning of playing the Doctor. But Fraser recorded his section because of his availability was limited. He was working on another project. He recorded his section at a different time to us. But when I heard it back, I I was absolutely convinced that we were all together, but we weren't. So uh, I think that's how that will happen. So I know that's coming up, which is great because that keeps the wolf from the door a bit longer. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, good to hear. And thank you so much today, Elliot, for giving your time and everything and for talking with me about your career and Doctor Who. Thank you. No, it's been a pleasure. And that's it for our interview with Elliot Chapman. Elliot, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for giving your time to the show. 
It was really interesting talking to you about Big Finish and your interests with Doctor Who and sort of interest in film and TV and movies and all that kind of stuff and even why you left the role of playing Ben Jackson for Big Finish. So it was a lot of fun and we would be glad to have you back on the 42 cast at any time. But now I want to know what you listening at home thought. Did you like this interview? What kind of people would you like me interviewing again? I really thrive on feedback and it never feels like I get enough. So you can give me that feedback in a variety of ways. One way is to email me at everything at 42cast.com. Another one is to go to the Facebook group at facebook.com slash 42cast. You can tweet to us at 42cast. You can go to the website 42cast.com. Leave a comment on any of the episodes there. Or you can leave reviews on Stitcher Radio or iTunes. I also want to make sure that I've mentioned the ESO Patreon. That is a way for you to contribute much-needed fundage to the ESO network and keep all of our shows on the air. Uh, You get access to all kinds of perks. You get some exclusive episodes for some of the podcasts on the network. You get some episodes of some shows early. There's a lot of different things based on the tiers, based on what you put into it, so... If you have the financial capacity and you want to help us out, then please check that out. And yeah, we would appreciate it. I also want to mention the Time Streams podcast, which is my other podcast, uh, because if you're listening to this interview, you are probably a Doctor Who fan and you might want to listen to my friend Juliet and I as we go through watching every Doctor Who episode from the beginning through now. We're not going to do a lot of Big Finish, but we will do Big Finish from time to time. But yeah, for now, we're, we're focused on the television series. We have an American point of view. I know a lot of Doctor Who commentary comes with a very British point of view, but I have been a Doctor Who fan almost my entire life from the time that I was five. Juliet is just coming to it, having just seen a few seasons of the new series, and she's never seen any of the classic series. So it's a lot of fun getting her perspective. It's a lot of fun for me getting her perspective, and I hope it's a lot of fun for the people listening to get both of our perspectives. So check that out. It's called Time Streams. Chicago TARDIS is still coming up. I don't know yet what panels or anything I will be on. In fact, they haven't even uh, posted their list of panels yet. But I, I, I mean, going by past uh, cons, I know that I'll probably be on at least a panel or two with their virtual Chicago TARDIS. I've been a part of that convention for, I don't know, six years, I think. And I've been on panels all of those years. So I think that it's a pretty sure thing. So I will keep you guys posted. Whenever I find out something, I will let you know. But now it's time to finally say goodbye. Uh, We've come to the end of the podcast. Join us back next week when Catherine McNamara will not be joining us. And until then, this is Nathan signing off. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2020. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. 
Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.